Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is May 11, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we are joined by pollster and columnist Kristen Soltis Anderson, who is also the author of this week's cover story in the Weekly Standard, along with Ben Shapiro. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. Well, let's just talk about we we spoke yesterday on yesterday's podcast with Ben Shapiro about what conservatives can do with with young people. You have been writing about uh, conservatives problem with millennials for years now. Let's just first of all, let's let's define our terms. What, what exactly when we're talking about millennials, what generation are we talking about? How old are they? So millennials defined by the Pew Research Center are those born between 1981 and 1996. So 15 years, it's a pretty broad group. Um, typically, when you're looking at generations, that's about the size of, you know, in terms of years uh, that you want to look at, which means, however, that you're looking at folks from, you know, their early 20s all the way up to their mid-30s. So a pretty large uh, group of people, somebody who's 37 is going to be very different from someone who's 22. Uh, the main thing that I think defines millennials is we have all come of age in an era when the internet was uh, just a, a part of daily life. Um, if you're at the oldest edge of the generation, you remember when dial-up in internet happened. You know, For younger people, it's hard to remember a time before the iPhone. But nonetheless, I think it's coming of age in the first generation to fully come of age in the digital era is is why I think millennials are kind of unique. Now, you wrote a book a few years ago about uh, Republicans and millennials. And since then, your book was The Selfie Vote, where millennials are leading America and how Republicans can keep up. Since then, things have gotten a lot worse for Republicans, haven't they? In some ways, a lot of the last three years has been doing the exact opposite of everything that I suggested in my book, Republicans Should Do to Win Back Young Voters. And we've seen the the results of that play out in various polls of what young people think. It's not just about how young people are voting. Um, you know, Republicans were able to win the White House with a pitifully small share of the millennial vote. Um, but A, that, that strategy will run out. Um, young people, as they are getting older, Contrary to the the popular belief, which this was also, I know, a point that, that Ben made in his piece, young people are not getting more conservative as they get older. In fact, they're, they're not growing out they're of getting it. more progressive as they're getting older. Um, so you can't, you know, conservatives can't just assume that young voters will uh, will come around to their side. Um, and, and that, I think, is, has been uh, it, it's been a big myth that I continue to try to push back against. But I think the other thing that's happened over the last few years is even with President Trump and all that has come along with uh, his administration, there there was a moment toward the beginning of the Trump presidency where I said, you know, his rhetoric on things like race or immigration are, are very out of step with where young people are. But young people are very dissatisfied with the two political parties. They're dissatisfied with the way things are being done. And so to the extent someone can come in and be a disruptor and do things in a very different way, there's opportunity there. This, you know, if if this presidency winds up being a success, there's a chance to win young voters over. Um, but we haven't really been seeing that, that more of what we have seen sort of permeate the millennial consciousness is not Trump, the innovative disruptor. It is Trump, the sort of preserver of an old way of life that just doesn't really resonate for, for younger voters. There has okay, been let, a, yeah. 
let's go back to some of these these basics. So the the, the millennial problem. First of all, how many millennials are there? This is a huge generation. Huge I'm not generation. Sure the, I'm not sure a lot of the older generation. I think a lot of baby boomers still think, see everything through the lens of how huge the baby boom was. You're right. So the, the millennials are largely the kids of the baby boomers. And there are, I believe, about 75 million in the U.S. Um, that's that's where the millennial generation is expected to peak, uh, which is larger today than the baby boom generation. Now, in politics, there are more baby boom voters than there are millennial voters because we as a generation underperform our potential but have been increasing our participation with each decade. We're not getting more conservative, but we are getting more engaged. Okay, and and right now, what do the polls suggest, the breakdown liberal conservative uh, among millennial voters? Uh, it's, it's pretty grim. I mean, for millennial voters, you've only got 2% of millennials who consider themselves consistent conservatives. 2%? Uh, only 2%. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's a bleak number. Meanwhile, the percentage that consider themselves to be uh, progressive or, pardon me, liberal, um, actually reclaiming that word liberal has has grown um, to where it's a pretty sizable portion. And this isn't just millennials, by the way, even among Gen X, uh, as they've gotten older, they have continued to sort of say we consider ourselves to be liberal. So liberal is not a dirty word for the millennial generation any longer. And, and neither is socialist, apparently. So, I, you know, I, I take some, I, I issue that sort of proclamation with some caution. Um, dep it depends a lot on how you word a question. I think a lot of young voters don't necessarily, like, it's been said that when young people think of socialism, they don't think of the Soviet Union, they think of Switzerland, they think of Denmark, um, they think socialism means a government that is able to provide a lot of things to people, even if taxes are a little bit higher, mm. they don't think of it as, it means government running, you know, every aspect of your economy. It doesn't mean this, you know, they don't think of it in terms of it means the state coming in and depriving you of freedom and choice. They just sort of see, well, it seems like things in Europe are going OK. And so I think it's, you know, we have historical lessons about where socialism, uh, what happens when you really do try to implement genuine socialism, how it is just a consistent failure. Uh, for a lot of young people, you know, we've all come of age in a post-Cold War world where many of those examples are, are memories, uh, things that we learn about if our history class teaches them properly, not something that we, uh, you know, is happening contemporaneously uh, in our view, uh, you know, somewhere else in the world. The um, uh, your, your, your piece begins with a line, the right fell for, um, actually it's the subject, the right fell for the myth of pajama boy and it disregards young adults at its own peril. Now, as a member of the baby boom generation, I remember Pajama Boy. He became the image of that smug, entitled Obama-era millennial. So talk about why you think it's the myth of Pajama Boy. Sure. So, you know, the I remember Pajama Boy came out, and I it is, even to this day, when I do focus groups of older conservative voters, you know, they will point to him as a kind of example of this is everything that's wrong with this generation and this is what's wrong with America, that we are coddling this new generation, 
people telling them they can have everything for free and, you know, and, and they, they think they're entitled to it and they haven't had to earn it. And that's terrible. And the good news that I have to deliver is that in most of my research on young voters, that's not how most of them behave or think. Um, too often, I think the perception of what a millennial is, is very driven by uh, a, an overeducated, kind of overprivileged uh, young person who has gotten too many degrees in too many irrelevant subjects and goes and works in a field like tech or media. And it ignores that, you know, the majority of millennials don't get a four-year college degree. And the majority of millennials are not, you know, riding around on hoverboards every day demanding free sushi from their employers. <laughs> that there's this caricature that's very easy to lampoon but is is not representative of where most millennials are at. It's certainly so, true that they're open to policies that would involve government being more generous with benefits, but I think it's also a factor if they haven't heard an alternative. So most of them are not, in fact, sitting around wearing the onesie pajamas, drinking hot chocolate, talking about somebody giving them free health care, that that's not who they are? I, I don't believe so. And even if someone is, you know, making the choice to wear onesie pajamas and wear hipster glasses, you know, there's still an argument to be made there about how the free market has made it possible for them to have those hipster glasses and onesie pajamas that they bought, <laughs> not the government. <laughs> so, the, 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 the biggest gap in the polls between millennials and, um, and, and, and this is something that Ben also talks about, the, the gap between young conservatives and older conservatives, it does come down to some of these social issues like, uh, you know, LGBTQ rights, marijuana legalization and immigration. Um, I was really struck in your piece uh, by the numbers about immigration, uh, that that even in the Trump era, y- young people have a they're they're going in exactly the opposite direction on the question of immigration, aren't they? Well, and part of it is because the millennial generation is extremely diverse. You can't separate out the question of generational divides from um, racial and ethnic divides in America. Uh, the millennial generation is about close to 55% white non-Hispanic. For the generation that comes after them, it's barely, it's about half uh, of those young people are white non-Hispanic. So as you get each generation further down the line, uh, you are getting a more and more diverse generation. And so you've got a huge slice of, of the millennial generation that is Latino and has views about immigration that, you know, it's not that we want open borders or what have you, but believe something needs to be done to uh, change the system and believe that changing it in a way that has compassion for those who have been here for a while and have played by the rules. And, you know, overall, when it comes to legal immigration, millennials think legal immigration is a good thing, that you've got people who come to America and they contribute and they make the country better by their participation in it. Um, I think it's something like eight out of 10, seven out of 10 or eight out of 10 millennials believe that immigrants come to America and, and enrich our culture and make us a better nation. And what's really fascinating is that where millennials are at, if you go back 10 years, where millennials were at 10 years ago is where baby boomers are today. Hmm. So on issues like immigration, on issues like LGBT rights, even on issues like immigration, you tend to find that attitudes that are first espoused by young people about a decade later get espoused in similar numbers by uh, the older generation. So, you know, there's there was talk about uh, 
well, why don't conservatives try leading young voters more? Why don't conservatives try bringing uh, young voters around to their views? And what's happening in practice is the opposite, that young voters have views and then older voters are catching up to them a decade later. And that's especially pronounced on these issues like LGBT rights, marijuana and immigration. Hmm. Now, you 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 don't uh, I, you, you have no illusions about how difficult uh, this mountain is going to be to climb uh, to climb. But you do say that there is there are things that conservatives can do to connect with young people. Um, and, and you list several areas, entrepreneurship, fiscal responsibility and suspicion of old, clunky, inefficient government. I guess the question I would have is, is that going to be sufficient to, to overcome the sort of identity politics of our time, where politics seems to be less about policy than it is about uh, which group you belong to, which tribe you belong to, um, and, 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 the, and the overall sort of atmospherics of the Trump era. So I don't want to sugarcoat how hard it will be for mm -hmm. conservatives to repair some of the damage that has been done. It's much easier uh, to win someone over to your view when uh, you begin talking to them when they're 18 to try to persuade someone who is now 36 to change their mind will be a lot harder. Um, and, you know, a lot of when when folks like me come out and say, hey, we need to talk to young voters, a criticism I hear is, well, all you want us to do is just be more like Democrats. That seems foolish, mm -hmm. right? That, why would you want the Republican Party to just become more like Democrats in, in chasing these young votes, because don't you risk losing the voters you already have in the process? Well, and and you, can, you can understand that argument. I mean, basically, you know, if, 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 if you come out for legalized marijuana, um, you know, much more restrictive, much less restrictive immigration policies, gay rights, that will sound to a lot of conservatives like, well, you just become a Democrat. And so for, for those issues, I mean, they are in some ways gateway issues for, for young voters. They just they can't support a party they think is hostile on LGBT rights or what have you. But so what I tried to identify were places where Republicans don't have to change who they are. They just have to get better about uh, describing, explaining and implementing policies that uh, show why the things that they stand for, especially on, on an economic uh, basis, are, are better for young people's quality of life. So an example that I've given before is that in 2012, uh, Barack Obama gave an interview to MTV where he was asked, you know, young people nowadays in America want to be entrepreneurs. They want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. What have you done as president to make it easier for a young person to start a business? And his answer was a fabulous one. He said, you know, I signed a bill that repealed financial regulations that were preventing small investors from raising, uh, you know, contributing to causes online. Now you can mm. raise money online for a project. Uh, you know, I gave you Kickstarter. But the mm. bill that he signed came out of a Republican Congress with far more Republican votes than Democratic votes. The opposition to it mostly came from Democrats because it was about repealing a financial regulation. Barack Obama gets to take credit for it because he signed it. But gosh, why weren't Republicans out on every college campus saying, hi, we repealed regulations and gave you Kickstarter? It's it's completely in line with our principles. It would have been a good message. Would it have won millions of young voters? No, but it would have been a start. And it's it's missed opportunities like that that have just compounded this problem over a decade and have made it so much more insurmountable now. Now, your piece is the cover story of the Weekly Standard, and it is paired with Ben Shapiro's piece, which we talked about yesterday. 
you've had a chance to read over his piece. Do you have any disagreements between the two of you or are, are there are there things that that you um, take exception to at all? So I thought his piece was fantastic. And I liked how he really focused in on the way young people are perceiving culture and political correctness and and that, because I do think there's a lot of energy among those young people who do consider themselves conservative. It's a small group, but for those who who still, uh, who are still hanging in there, I mean, this idea of, I want freedom of speech, I want freedom of expression, I don't like the the single-mindedness that I see coming from the left. I think I'm so glad that he touched on that. But where I think he and I disagree, perhaps a little bit, and I I don't want to be reading this line uncharitably, but I think he said something like, you know, the the conventional wisdom in politics is that you need good policy and votes will follow. And he thinks that that is not correct when it comes Mm -hmm. to young people, that simply doing good policy isn't enough. And I, I think he underestimates the value that good policy can have. I think if, the, if you have good policy and the economy starts growing and people go, hey, wait a minute, these folks, when they're in charge, my paycheck gets bigger. Hey, when these folks are in charge, I can afford more stuff and I can feel more comfortable in my quality of life. I think that that hmm. is meaningful. I think if Republicans are able to say, here's how we're going to get you health care or get government out of the way of, of, of you getting health care or whatever that looks like. I think, you know, on big issues, having some kind of policy idea, even if that policy idea is let's get government out of the way, if you're producing results, I think that's meaningful. I, I, I'm sensitive to the idea that, you know, pushing a policy agenda sometimes can sound like, well, we just want our version of government to solve problems in a different way than their version of government to solve problems, which is anathema to, you know, pure limited government conservatives. But I think you have to have policy be a part of it. I I think some conservatives lean on this idea that you can just have messaging and language and that will fix everything. And I do think we need policy ideas that address modern problems uh, in order for young people to think we are relevant as a movement. Let me just push back a little bit on that because I don't I don't disagree with you. But the other the 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 flip side of that would be, are young people going to listen to you know these kinds of policy debates if they believe that the speaker is racist, sexist, xenophobic? Doesn't that sort of blot out all of the message? So, for example, you said you, Republicans don't have to change who they are. Well, I'm trying to imagine Mike Pence going to a college campus or going to a group of millennials and trying to explain conservative policy issues. Will they actually be open to listening or do we have to wait for a different generation of conservatives to make this case? So when I say Republicans don't have to change who they are, I mean that on when it comes to basic core principles of what it means to be a conservative, I don't think we need to jettison that. I think when it comes to specific individual politicians who hold views that are considered to be hostile to the LGBT community or what have you, that is a that is a tough hurdle. I, it's it's hard for me to think that you know four percent GDP growth can overcome the idea that. Why don't you like my gay best friend? Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think that in some ways that, that there are certainly voices on the right who have earned their reputation as being anti-LGBT, who have, who have earned their reputation as being, uh, you know, insufficiently uh, em- embracing of, of cultural and ethnic diversity. But I think there are some who are, are not bad on these issues, but simply because they are Republican, they are tagged with it. 
And what I hear from from politicians who say that they have finally taken taken the time to go talk to young voters, taken the time to go and actually speak with audiences that are not enamored of, of the GOP, they say part of it is just that if, if all an audience is hearing from is the left saying, these guys hate you, mm-hmm. and they don't hear a Republican trying to talk to them at all, then they just assume that it's true. So even though, you know, yes, if someone shows up and they think you are racist and hateful, they're not necessarily going to want to listen to what you have to say about policy. Uh, But if you show up and begin having the conversation, it starts there to begin chipping away at this idea that you are racist and hateful. Do you have some some good stars, some some names of people that you're looking at? This would be the model for going forward. These are people who actually get this and would be able to appeal to millennials. So I think within the GOP, there are a lot of exciting, young, rising stars, I think particularly in the House of Representatives, who I look to as examples of how to navigate this moment. Um, You have someone like Elise Stefanik from New York State. You have Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin. You have Adam Kinzinger from Illinois, all of whom have at times had their criticisms of President Trump, um, but nonetheless have been able to hang on to the support of their fellow partisans by saying, look, I'll criticize the president when he does things I don't like, um, but when he does things that are good and are advancing principles that I believe in, I'm not going to reflexively attack him. Um, And because they are young, they're very good at using social media. And I think when they talk about things like student loans, when they talk about things like America's role in the world, when they talk about things like the need to deal with the national debt, I find them to be uh, good communicators on mm-hmm. these issues because they they themselves are young. They themselves can speak that language. So I think there are some rising stars in the House um, who uh, give me hope for the future. Now, I'm guessing that most of the time when you're talking to Republicans about this millennial problem, you go into a room where most of the people there look like me, old white guys. Are, are, are they listening to what you have to say? There was a point in time after the 2012 election when there actually was a lot of interest in this topic. Um, Folks did not want to lose another presidential election. They sort of got that this was a brewing problem. But the 2016 election cycle kind of pressed pause on all of that. Mm. Uh, You know, there was this the the entire GOP autopsy school of thought sort of got thrown out. And and look, Donald Trump wound up winning the election while throwing out at least half of what was in that GOP autopsy. So, you know, for Republicans, there are a lot of folks leading the party who are like, well, I don't know, Donald Trump figured out this other coalition. It doesn't really require that we win a bunch of young voters because he has pieced together this coalition out of other groups and it seemed to work. So in the short run, you know, when you are victorious in an election, you're much less likely to go, okay, let me sit back and think about what I can do to do better. Where are their weaknesses? Where am I going to get challenged in the future? So there'd been a decline since the 2016 election in kind of, I don't want to say interest in this topic, but appetite for doing anything yeah, about a sen- it. A sense of urgency about the possibility of a, democra- a demographic time bomb for for Republicans. Right. And, and I think some of that is people rightly saying, look, this idea that demographics were going to keep Republicans from winning an election ever again that maybe it was it was predicted that that was coming too soon, that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that Donald Trump proved that there was still, you know, one last gasp 
there uh, for, for the old uh, coalition to still work. Um, but I am skeptical that it, it will last much longer. I mean, again, mm-hmm. Donald Trump was, and, and I think it is the electoral college alone that is kind of preserving the sustainability of that system. Um, there's a great project called States of Change that is, I, I believe, a Brookings AEI uh, coalition that just uh, collaboration that looks at the demographic changes across individual U.S. states and projects it out over decades and then looks at the political implications of that. And, you know, Republicans are going to struggle to win the popular vote uh, if the if the coalition of who they have in their party doesn't change or grow. Um, but they'll still be able to be very competitive in the Electoral College because of where voters are clustered. Um, so I think that has sort of taken some of the urgency away from this, which has I think a long-term really big problem for the party, but it doesn't feel like a problem in the acute short term enough to really drive action. Kristen, thanks so much. Uh, uh, Kristen's piece, uh, Conservatives of the Millennial Problem, is the cover story of the Weekly Standard, and uh, and her piece, along with Ben Shapiro's, I, I think are um, kind of must-reads in order to understand this particular issue. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back again on Monday. <laughs>